Thank you very much. Um, my approach to this material is, is rather different. Uh, it's not nearly as uh, practically oriented as uh, either Doug or Marion. Uh, but just for some small bit of explanation, I uh, um, began working on attempting to understand the nature of Buddhist ritual uh, ritual practice and how that is uh, ways of attempting to understand uh, a cognitive dimension of that. And from that, then began to work towards more comparative kinds of uh, inquiries in uh, cognitive science and attempting to see how it relates to Buddhist concepts. So it was started out as a very specific kind of project, just looking at Buddhist ritual and then coming up with an analysis and theory about that that has roots in cognition, uh, has become more, uh, more generalized. Um, there were four specific items that I wanted to talk about in relationship to the work. Um, so these are, in fact, just uh, highlighting some snippets of what is, in fact, a very rich um, treasure trove of ideas uh, found in the book. Uh, first of those has to do with the idea of consciousness as a stream, uh, the second with ineffability, uh, the third on the distinction between true self and false self, uh, and the fourth on hierarchy. Uh, so some of these are comparative, uh, and uh, some are more explicitly uh, critical. Uh, <clears throat> Mark includes a discussion of William James's notion of consciousness as a stream, which just struck me it employs the same metaphors as found in some of the classic Indian Buddhist des descriptions of consciousness. Uh, the term in Sanskrit is santana, uh, which is literally just the word for stream. Uh, and both uses of this metaphor seem to share an emphasis on consciousness as an ongoing flow. Uh, if we follow out the metaphoric entailments, we find suggestions of the paradox of change and identity found in the Heraclitean aphorism that also use, uses the metaphor of the stream. That is, that you can't step into the same one twice. But the question um, that then arises, uh, which is a, in fact a question for all comparative studies uh, more generally, um, such as in the comparative study of religion, is uh, put none too fine a point on it, so what? Do we in fact have here nothing more than an interesting coincidence of a couple of rhetorical flourishes, standard kind of uh, English department understanding of metaphor as a nice kind of uh, way of amplifying something, uh, or are we dealing with some kind of independent confirmation of a phenomenological observation about the nature of consciousness? In other words, does the similarity of the two independently generated descriptions point towards something that is true about consciousness? And does their independence, in fact, provide mutual support for that? Uh, so this is a, a fundamental question about the nature of comparative work. You know, is, it, is the comparison, is the similarity that one discovers in any way meaningful? Uh, and it is only meaningful against some third term, which is a theory, you know, in this case, a theory of thought. Uh, so that is one point that, that struck me about the use of William James and the, the uh, notion of 
the, the stream of consciousness, uh, which of course has generated literary uh, you know, works uh, employing the stream of consciousness, uh, but it was also then a question of what, is, what more does it point to, uh, if anything. Um, so that was one of the areas that I thought was uh, particularly uh, suggestive in the cognitive examination of consciousness of the mind uh, in comparison with uh, classic Buddhist theories of the mind as well. Uh, the second point that I found particularly important uh, in, or one of many points that I found particularly important, and one second one that I wish to talk about, um, is that um, I think Mark does an excellent job of problematizing the notion of ineffability. Uh, in much of religious studies, ineffability has become a dogma uh, that is unquestionable. Uh, it is another idea, of course, that is Dr. William James's treatment of uh, religious experiences and mystical experiences. Um, that is, that he highlights it as one of the descriptive characteristics um, that is found in discussions of uh, religious experience. And people talk about the, the experience as ineffable. But um, this, it seems to me, is rooted in and has become so entrenched within religious studies because it's part of the romantic theoretical complex um, that regards the irreducibility and incorrigibility uh, of one's own personal experience. Um, this comes to be particularly applied to religious experience and aesthetic judgments uh, and is linked into assertions of the individual autonomy as the defining characteristic of the modern Western self. Uh, so this is a very, it's like this one little thread that Mark begins to unravel about ineffability uh, and how the dominance of that notion in religious studies has provided an uh, impedance between religious studies or theology and the natural sciences um, begins to, in my mind, as you begin to pull on that, it opens up a lot of other aspects about uh, the conceptions of personal identity uh, and how deeply rooted those are, not only in popular culture, but in religious studies in 19th century romantic theories of the self. Um, and one of the things that struck me about that is that uh, this is kicking off of another uh, work that I've been uh, recently reading, uh, Meeting the Great Bliss Queen uh, by Anne Klein, which has to do with um, the interface between psychology, Western psychology, uh, and traditional Tibetan practices. Uh, has to do with the, the fact that the formation of the self and the emphasis upon aesthetic judgment as a matter of individual autonomy and as defining the self becomes completely reinforced by the capitalist market system uh, in which your identity is constructed around your ability to make choices within the marketplace, uh, within the range of choices that is presented to you. Um, and so it's kind of a reinforcing of a particular economic system and social system that goes along with that. Um, and 
I don't think that Mark had any of those ideas in mind, but that's where, once he began to push on this notion of ineffability as an unquestionable one uh, within religious studies, it seemed to open up a lot of other possible uh, directions of inquiry. Um, on the notion of the true self versus the false self, this is widely accepted in popular contemporary religious culture uh, and has come to be, um, I think, layered onto uh, Buddhism in part of the process of adapting Buddhism to um, Western religious culture. Ideas that are, in fact, very mm, congruent with other Indian forms of religiosity um, have been accepted as just kind of universals. Um, and this is one point at which I would kind of engage in a uh, questioning dialogue, a critical dialogue about that. That it is in fact not um, as universal as it is presented. Uh, and it's one of the points at which I would question whether or not for the Buddhist tradition it is in fact something that is found in Canon. Um, not that I'm all that big on authority, um, but I do have questions about what's going on with the representation of Buddhism in the modern West versus what it was and how that transformative process has uh, changed what Buddhism is uh, in the way that it is represented. Uh, because I don't find the true self, false self distinction in classic Indian Buddhist thought about the nature of the mind. Um, which then leads me to the, the fourth issue, uh, which has to do with hierarchy. Um, and unlike Doug, I'm not a fan of Houston Smith's. Um, I find it highly problematic that he has, Houston Smith, not Doug, um, <laughs> that Smith has um, forced a particular cosmology, that is a Gnostic Neoplatonist cosmology, onto the entirety of the world's religions. That um, this is a Procrustean bed uh, when it comes to the ways in which uh, other world religions come to be interpreted. Um, the source of Smith's work, which goes back to the Great Chain of Being by Lovejoy. Lovejoy was dealing with a particular medieval view. Medieval, European, Christian, Gnostic, Neoplatonist view of reality. Um, and there are certainly similarities between that cosmology and other cosmologies around the world. But many of the consequences of that particular cosmology, such as higher is more sacred, uh, do not in fact apply. Um, so this is one of those points in which the metaphoric entailments, okay, what follows from, what is entailed by the application of the metaphor, become highly, highly problematic. Because once, if we accept the fundamental metaphor uh, of the hierarchy of being, um, then certain things follow from that logically. And certain things are entailed by that. And that's where we begin to have to become very, uh, very careful because the, the initial similarity may allow us to shift over to adopting 
that other metaphor, um, which has consequences which are not to be found in the tradition from which we're making the so I lost my sentence there. Um, so I'll just put a period and then move on to the next sentence. Um, in Marx's work, it seems to me that, and this becomes very, very critical, I think, and um, not critical in the negative, bad critical, but critical in the questioning of what um, uh, is foundation to it. He employs the, the hierarchy of levels, um, and that this is, in fact, very, very well entrenched as a framework for thinking about lots of things. Uh, thinking about levels and hierarchy is a tool by which we understand the world in many cases. The question is, is it always appropriate? Um, and it works here in uh, Marx's work very nicely to structure the different fields that he is uh, approaching and attempting to understand. But I'm wondering whether or not it is in fact useful or accurate in all applications of talking about the subject matter that we're attempting to, to deal with. Um, there are two sentences, which um, I believe are on page 89, which are back to back. One <coughs> sentence says, higher level systems are grounded in lower level ones. Okay? Um, which I believe is uh, a way of addressing the, the um, problem of eliminative reductionism. You know, that we've got this kind of integration between the different levels and you can't reduce one without, you know, losing that. But the next sentence says, and I think that this is a different claim, systems do not exist in isolation but build upon other existing systems. Um, and what I began to wonder about is um, the, the notion of what it means to be fundamental. Uh, certainly in one of the areas of uh, neuroscience, there are those who argue for top-down causality uh, in the brain. That uh, neural processes are, it isn't just an upward approach that you can analyze the products on the basis of lower level neural functioning, but that in fact, higher level neural functioning conditions downward what goes on in the neurons. Okay? So that there's a, a top-down causality in, in the brain according to, to some theorists. Um, but then I decided to get even a little more exotic and a little more radical and question whether or not um, that kind of relationship is always appropriate. That there's a certain kind of autonomy to systems. Um, in other words, the example that came to my mind was, if we cannot describe a causal relation between, for example, the exchange of oxygen and carbon dioxide in the lungs and systems of political organization, okay, in what sense then, other than the most trivial, which is if you're not breathing, you're not able to have a political system, um, in what sense then does it, how is it meaningful to talk about the one that's more foundational than the other? And what it, it seems to me that this is itself a kind of pre-theoretical assumption that is built into the metaphor of hierarchy and level. Um, and 
I think that there's a danger of being at the effect of the metaphor and its entailments. That is, that the metaphor and what it entails is driving the ways in which we're thinking about things. Um, okay. And in closing, in a summary, I was struck immensely by what appeared to me to be uh, a similarity between the way in which Mark is talking about the soul as um, no longer as something substantive, the way in which these Riverside undergraduates in psychology classes were talking about it, uh, as something permanent, eternal, absolute, and unchanging, but rather as the Aristotelian form. Um, and I suddenly began to feel like there's, in that form of theology, there's a great deal of similarity with Buddhist thought. Um, because the, Buddhism itself is frequently misunderstood when it asserts the emptiness of the self to mean that the self does not exist, and that is, let me assure you, not what it means. Uh, it is empty of being permanent, eternal, absolute, and unchanging. It is lacking in those characteristics. In other words, it's an ongoing process. Um, and there seemed to be suddenly a great deal of congruence between these. And what struck me is that it is a very, very important for um, Buddhist advocates uh, in contemporary society to be familiar with Christian theology at its cutting edge. Uh, because much of what is being battled against uh, on the Buddhist side, when one reads some of the caricatures, it seems to me, of Christian theology uh, that result from still thinking about Christian theology as it was done in the late 19th and early 20th centuries and the kind of popular level uh, of religious thought represented by the Riverside uh, undergraduates. Um, so I think that this is a very important work. It is a very important work for Buddhist thinkers in the West who are engaged in dialogue with our surrounding society and to realize that it's not, um, sim it's not a simple matter uh, to have that dialogue and to be engaged with that, uh, that society. And there's a lot of value to be found in looking at contemporary theology. So thank you.